0: Tortoise. Hello, it's Basha here and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. Often, an investigation starts small. A single story, a single person. Late last year, Louise Tickle, a reporter in our newsroom, began paying attention to the story of a vulnerable, suicidal 12-year-old girl who'd been locked in solitary confinement, fed through a hatch in the door because there was nowhere else for her to go. But soon, Louise realised that this was not a single scandal, but a much, much bigger one. This week's episode reveals the sheer number of distressed and vulnerable children being locked away in Britain by order of the courts. Our investigation has discovered that since the pandemic, the number of children issued with deprivation of liberty orders by the courts has increased threefold. These children haven't committed crimes, they aren't being sectioned under the Mental Health Act. These are children who are being taken away from their families and interstate care and they should be placed in homes where they can be properly treated and the situation de-escalated. But the reality is there are hardly any secure, regulated places for these children to go. So they end up like that 12-year-old, often suicidal, intent on self-harm and locked in solitary confinement or locked in hotel rooms or on barges or in caravans. This is a system that is unsafe, expensive and unseen. I'll hand over to Louise and producer Patricia Clark for this episode revealing children locked away. Britain's modern bedlam. And just before we begin, I need to warn you that this is a difficult listen at times and it deals with self-harm and suicide.
2: So, so you just pop that on. It's early morning and I'm in a grey hotel room on a rainy day and I'm about to be transported.
3: Can you hold that? Yeah. Oh my god, that's so weird. And you should be able to click.
2: That's my producer, and she's just handed me a VR headset. To kind of move around. I mean, you can just walk.
3: Oh, my
4: God.
2: And suddenly, I'm standing in another grey room, in a hospital.
4: I'm stood in this... I mean, it feels like a concrete-walled room. And the first thing that I can see is a single bed... It's blue, it's covered in plastic, and there's a, a small coverlet on it.
2: Um, but the first impression is of a completely bare room. I mean, I'm. I'm, I'm here because I'm following the case of a 12 year old girl who we'll call Becky. Becky is, by all accounts, volatile, vulnerable, and determined to kill herself. Just over two months ago, she was deemed a threat to herself and others and, not for the first time, removed from her home and her family. And until just a few days ago, she was living in this room, known as a seclusion room, in the mental health unit of a hospital in Staffordshire.
4: The walls are completely bare. And if I turn to the door, I can see what looks like a large letterbox, which is the hatch.
2: I wanted to visit the room Becky was held in, but the hospital press team told me it wasn't possible. It's set apart from the general psychiatric ward in a part of the building where there are strict access conditions for staff, let alone visitors. Instead, they've given me an online link to view it via this VR headset. Becky has been kept in this room for eight weeks in near total isolation. Pretty much her only contact with human beings is when hospital staff feed her through that hatch. To remind you, she's just 12. So so
4: it is a room that's been very well designed to keep people safe, but the idea of putting a 12-year-old child in here and her being locked in here for days and weeks, it's... Not designed for anyone to have a life.
2: Everything in this room is designed to stop people from killing themselves. The windows are made of special material that doesn't break. All corners are rounded off. And I'm told the furniture is incredibly heavy so it can't be thrown around. But according to everyone who's responsible for Becky, and there's a lot of them, this accommodation is totally unsuitable for her. In fact, not just unsuitable. Actively damaging. Becky's story has made national headlines in recent weeks. I know that because I've written the articles and attended court hearing after court hearing. The judge presiding over her case is demanding that social workers and doctors find somewhere for her to go, somewhere considerably better than this. A home where she'll be cared for by properly trained staff and plenty of them. A therapeutic environment where, crucially, she also has a chance to get better.
4: I'm just stood here thinking about my 12-year-old son living in this room 24-7 with no access to the outdoors no access to daylight no stimulation of any kind it's just empty and what that would do to him I think it would send him mad.
2: The problem is, there is nowhere for Becky to go. Not a single bed is on offer in any registered, regulated, secure care home across England or Wales.
5: The system is full. The system is full to the brim.
2: And I'm telling you about Becky not just because of the horrors of her situation, but because actually, her story isn't an exception.
6: She was in danger all the time. She was walking down motorways in the middle of the night, on her own, to come home. There are scores of others just like
2: her. Desperate children. Sometimes victims of abuse, or trafficking, or with learning disabilities, or they've got undiagnosed autism, or a mental health condition. And they come to the attention of police and social services when they're distressed, emotionally dysregulated, and ultimately, often, suicidal. These are children who can't go home, but who need keeping safe
1: and who need a chance to heal. If this is the best we can do for X and others in similar crisis, what right do we? What right do the system, our society, and indeed the state itself, have to call ourselves civilised?
2: I'm Louise Tickle and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. In this episode, I'm going to investigate what happens to Becky and other children like her. And I want to know Where are our most vulnerable, damaged and traumatised children being held? And why are they being harmed, not helped? The more research I've done and the
7: more people I've spoke to, they they never come home.
8: I've been to see Becky today. She's still in seclusion. I took her a collage of her favourite pics to stick on her window. She reports not being outside other than one time, but she can't remember when that was.
2: I got in contact with Becky's mum, Lydia, that's not her real name, after the first court hearing I attended at the end of January. We spoke over WhatsApp. I'm sharing the messages with her consent. Becky has always struggled from walking age, really. Becky grew up at home with her mum and two siblings and lived there until last year. Everyone says she's a really bright, clever child who loves playing outdoors, adores her pets and spending time with her horses. That's when she's happiest. But life for Becky has been tough from the outset. She wouldn't sleep, always talking, bouncing about.
8: By year one in school, aged six, she had five excluded periods from school.
2: From a very young age, she struggled with behavioural issues. Lydia tells me that when Becky was seven, her school made her work alone in a small, windowless room because she was so disruptive.
8: We moved Becky to a special school midway through year four. She stayed there 18 months, thriving. Then COVID hit and the school shut. She was in year six.
2: Then she spent 18 months without education. Everything came to a head last summer. Becky's behaviour became volatile, so dangerous that her mother could no longer manage her. She was put into various temporary, unregulated placements. In one, she was abused and neglected by the staff. Eventually, the council placed her in a travel lodge, which she quickly trashed. She assaulted staff and police. Aged just 12, she was charged with criminal damage and brought in front of the magistrates. That day, while she was in a holding cell, she took a smuggled overdose of antidepressants. Becky has
8: never self-harmed, cut herself, taken an overdose in my care, only in social
2: care. Becky needs an army, and her soldiers left her fighting alone. With nowhere for her to go, Becky was sent to another temporary placement. En route, she attacked her care staff again, this time while they were driving. She pulled the handbrake on the car, ran along the motorway, climbed up a building, and tried to jump. I don't know if people
4: necessarily understand what it means for a child to be at that level of risk. I wonder if you could explain what that looks like.
9: It looks like a a very angry young person. It looks like a very, um, I want to say, cornered. They're feeling cornered by life and they may thrash out (laughs) in a number of ways. It's often the case of being ignored or um, feeling under threat. Uh, the ways that that drives behaviour can look to the outside, very uh, deterrent, aggressive, kind of thoughtless, chaotic, but they are a, they are a reaction to those feelings.
2: Kathy Evans, chief executive of the charity Children England, has worked with dozens of children, just like Becky. She's careful not to describe them as violent or aggressive. Often they're deeply vulnerable, traumatised, and are acting from a place of almost unfathomable distress. Kathy Evans explains that it's important to de-escalate children in this state by providing them with what's known as secure accommodation. That's a home where children are supervised 24-7, sometimes by multiple care workers. They might, on occasion, be locked into that home. And ideally, they will have therapeutic care from highly trained professionals to help them transition back into their community and their family. But even the best secure accommodation is seen as an absolute last resort, and it should be a temporary solution to defuse a crisis.
9: I don't advocate secure blithely, um, and certainly not for minor criminality or for punishment, but I definitely saw some children for whom what was needed was a period of time during which being able to run off, or being able to... Um, smash things up, uh, was just taken off the equation to see if we could get to better understand and look after them and move them from that state of chaos and danger to feeling better able to manage and to to feel safe. But
2: because of the severe, long-standing shortage of secure accommodation in England and Wales, there has been absolutely nowhere for Becky to go. That's why she's been locked into this seclusion room. And as her mum describes, she's not getting better, she's getting worse.
8: Becky was quite emotional today. And she never cries, but she was crying. Toughest visit I've had seeing her crying, not being able to hug her. She buried her head in my hand through the hatch.
2: All the court hearings about Becky's case take place online. And while there's no grand courtroom, or judges in imposing robes, the clerk is clear that these cases are no less serious because they take place on Microsoft Teams.
10: This is the second of these cases I've had today. The second highly dysregulated teenage girl who needs support and is not getting it.
2: This is Mrs Justice Leaven, the High Court judge overseeing Becky's case. No recording is permitted in court, so an actor is voicing her words. There are 20-odd people on the link, from the council, the North Staffordshire NHS Trust and lawyers galore. There's also Becky's mother, who really wants her to come home. The judge wants her home too when she's ready. But now isn't the right time. Becky's still too volatile. She needs to stabilise first. In this particular hearing, the local council and the NHS have been asked to provide court documents suggesting a suitable placement for Becky. But they filed their paperwork late, very late. And so the judge doesn't have the information she needs.
10: I'm sure some in this hearing will think this is ridiculous. But given I have no evidence,
2: I will have to rely on Google. The name of one possible care provider, which is all she's been given, is throwing up unhelpful results. It's just
10: coming up with restaurants.
2: It's not the first time something like this has happened and Mrs Justice Leaven is at the end of her tether.
10: Miss Tickle must be getting an extraordinary view of the conduct of family litigation. This is a particularly badly run case, but really, this is not a way to proceed.
2: It's just embarrassing. Vital court documents filed so late the judge barely has time to read them, weeks turning into months of delays, with no good options being put forward for Becky... A judge having to Google to find information about a placement for this child who is in such distress that she keeps trying to kill herself, sometimes several times a day? To be clear, family court hearings are held in private. Usually the law bans reporting. But for this case, despite, or perhaps because of, its tensions and sensitivities, Mrs Justice Leaven has made an exception. And frankly, sometimes it feels like judges like her are begging me to report on this issue. Not Becky's story specifically, but the hundreds of children, just like her, who have nowhere to go. In the family justice system, it's an open secret that we are living through a nationwide, chronic children's care crisis. And we have been living through it for years.
11: A lot of these children are living on the margins of a society which doesn't care. I mean, it is unbelievable, except we know it happens.
2: Six years before Becky was locked in that hospital room, there was a warning call. Another girl with dangerous behavioural issues was in desperate need of a secure paediatric mental health bed. She became known as Child X when her case was heard by the country's top family judge, Sir James Munby. Like the judge in Becky's case, he was tasked with overseeing somewhere for X to go. But he couldn't help her either, because nothing was available. And so he published what is now a famous judgment.
1: It is a disgrace to any country with pretensions to civilization, compassion and, dare one say it, basic human decency, that a judge in 2017 should be faced with the problems thrown up by this case and should have to express himself in such terms.
2: Even when they're angry, judges' language is usually understated. And so Munby's wording was extraordinary. The world at one. This issue... It led the news bulletins for 24 hours. One of the
5: most senior judges in England and Wales attacks the lack of support services for young people with
1: mental health problems. We'll
2: speak to the former... And in particular, one phrase stood out.
1: If we, the system, society, the state, are unable to provide X with the supportive and safe placement she so desperately needs, and if in consequence she is unable to make another attempt on her life, then I can only say, with bleak emphasis, we will have blood on our hands.
2: Sir James Munby issued his warning in 2017. And in the years since, there have been other furious judgments coming out of the family courts. Just this January, in a case about another suicidal child, the President of the Family Court told the Secretary of State for Education, Gillian Keegan, to appear in front of him. Her department's responsible for these children. But she has to be excused. When the judge said no, she sent a barrister in her place. So we don't even know if she ever read his judgment. All of which makes me wonder, since Sir James Munby warned that our country would have blood on its hands if we didn't properly care for our most vulnerable children, has anything got better? Or might things, in fact, have got worse? I think that's right. I'll try, I'll try the Department for Education and I'll try
3: the councils as well.
2: I set my producer, Patricia, the task of getting some concrete data while I went on a journey of my own. I wanted to find Child X. I wanted to know what happened to her six years before I heard about Becky. When I started my search, all I had was the famous judgement – Child X and her family members were, as is usual in judgments, all anonymised, but their lawyers weren't. They were my only hope of being able to get in touch with Child X, and they did their best to help. One day, I got an email saying X's mother was happy for me to contact her.
6: Hello, we found you. We have, thank <laughs> oh you. Yeah. Yeah,
2: Lex's mother, who we'll call Sylvia, lives on a council estate just off a main road in Barrow-in-Furness, a neglected seaside town in Cumbria, where the only employment is the submarine industry. do I'm,
6: I'm, I'm a bit of a mess. It's my me, uh, heart failure, so I look like I've been battered, and I haven't. It's oh, just... No, it's just... Sure. Did your start
0: well, yeah.
6: Sylvia's
2: house is busy. You can tell that lots of people live there. She's sitting on her sofa, surrounded by Easter eggs and children's cards, most of them from her large family, who drop in and out as we talk. And Sylvia is eager to tell me about her daughter, Child X.
6: Well, she was, um... She was obviously very hyperactive, very, very... Um, she didn't sleep much at all. Um, when she first went to nursery, she, um, she went to a start nursery, and... Uh, She was quite, she didn't want to go, she was scared. But she went on a minibus and they brought her back immediately and said that she'd got so distressed, she'd kicked the gentleman on the bus when he was trying to hold her so severely he had to go to hospital.
4: This is when she was what, four or five? Two and a half.
6: Sylvia says
2: that X was finally diagnosed with autistic spectrum disorder in the year she turned 18. It runs in their family. Some of her siblings have it too, as do her
6: uncles, aunts, nephews and cousins. There's a kindness in Lucy. She's got a big heart, but her difficulty a social understanding. I don't like the people in between, she said, which is people of her own age, teenagers, because she doesn't understand them. Lucy is child X. She wasn't
2: formally diagnosed for years and didn't go to a specialist school. Nursery staff,
6: teachers, other professionals didn't seem to know what to do with her. There was um, a school education woman, um, psychologist, and I said to her, please, please, for God's sake, do something. She's escalating. She's becoming harder to handle at home, harder in school. Nobody's helping us. There's nowhere for me to go to. And she said, "Um, I would love to work with Lucy, but we don't have the funding. And it was just like, I cried. I went outside and I cried. And Lucy was saying, why are you crying? Why are you crying? And I was saying, I'm just tired. I'm just tired. And I thought, oh my God, no one is going to help her. No one is going to do anything for her at all. There's just nothing. There was nothing. Her behaviour started escalating, much like Becky's.
2: There were attacks on her family and peers, suicide attempts. One night, just like Becky, she was found walking down a motorway. She was moved from placement to placement between the criminal justice system, the NHS and the council. And eventually, at 17, she was in secure accommodation on the basis of a youth court conviction. It was at that point that her famous case was heard in the family court.
11: It was a shocking case. Um, In the judgment I said it was a manifestation of a scandal. The conditions in which X was living, and I actually said in the judgment, I said I can't bring myself to use the word living, she is existing, were unbelievably grim. And there seemed little likelihood of anything very much changing.
2: This is Sir James Munby, the man who wrote the Blood on Our Hands judgment back in 2017. He's retired now, and he remembers that day well.
11: The expert evidence was that unless something was done for X, when she came out of detention in, I think, was it 11 days' time, there was a very high degree of probability she would make what would turn out to be a successful attempted suicide. And that was the origin of the expression, blood on our hands.
2: X's case, and now Becky's, involve a tricky area of law. Children with complex needs might rarely get sectioned under the Mental Health Act, or a judge can make a Deprivation of Liberty order, which prevents children from going anywhere without close supervision. They can be locked into their accommodation or even their bedroom, and sometimes a judge can give permission for them to be physically or chemically restrained to keep them safe. It can get difficult because the criteria for psychiatric sectioning is very specific and very time-sensitive. Sometimes doctors say that despite a child showing what looks like a mental disorder, lots of suicide attempts for instance, they don't assess that child as being mentally ill.
11: You have cases where families, where parents have to sit in court, listen to barristers, arguing incomprehensibly that under section this and section that of that and so on and so forth, it's actually down to them, not us. And
4: everybody says the same thing. It's them, not us.
11: Yes. And occasionally the judge has to resolve it. But, you see, that the family judge can't resolve it.
4: Meanwhile, this child is sitting
11: in limbo somewhere. Meanwhile, the child's sitting in limbo.
2: I'm struck by the similarity between X's story and Becky's. It sometimes feels eerie. Both troubled since they were toddlers, both repeatedly running away, both ending up in danger on motorways, both arrested as young teenagers. In both of these cases, the NHS and the council argued for months about who was responsible for this child. Back in 2017, Munby gave that strongly worded judgment because he wanted someone to do something. And lo and behold, they did.
11: The case came back, I think, a few days later. And miraculously, they'd found a place. On the one hand, from X's point of view, I was delighted. Uh, On the wider front, I had severe misgivings about it for this reason. I don't know about all the other exes out there.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves,
2: feel the warm breeze, relax,
0: and think about
2: work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
1: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
2: Each week, I get to speak to some of the smartest people in the world as they connect their new research to the biggest news and issues of today. You'll get a bit of
6: everything from how women are changing North Korea to the emerging science of interoception, our sixth sense, to the importance of intellectual humility. Follow The Conversation Weekly for new
2: episodes every Thursday and read more stories direct from academic experts every day on theconversation.com. It's hard to find out exactly how many other children like Becky and Child X are out there. But in the four years to twenty twenty one, the number of applications to deprive children of their liberty more than quadrupled. Based on numbers since last summer, the Nuffield Family Justice Observatory predicts that one thousand three hundred children will be subject to deprivation of liberty orders over the course of the year.
4: So when judges who you know, some of the most senior judges in the country who oversee what's happening to these very vulnerable,
2: complex children. They keep publishing judgments that are literally screaming out for help. Does it make any difference?
11: No.
5: No, it didn't translate into any improvements whatsoever. Things have got worse. They haven't got better.
2: This is Mark Carr, Deputy CEO of the Children's Homes Association, which supports providers of residential childcare.
5: I'd say the sector's probably at about 95% full. Certainly the last 15 years or so, uh, local authorities have been given significant increase in statutory duties of what they have to do. But unfortunately, the government just doesn't send the cheque to go with it. Two of the core spending areas are children's social care and adult social care. Um, Adult social care is much more political. Um, They vote. So actually funding has been... Yeah, much more protected or increased for adult social care. Children in residential settings are just not a priority for government and they're just not interested.
2: It's not just a lack of bricks and mortar. Even if there were enough homes, there is an ongoing workforce crisis because people can earn more at a supermarket than they can looking after troubled kids. And the sector is inherently precarious because private providers can do as they please. One of the biggest has just abruptly closed 28 residential care homes because of market challenges, leaving councils in a panic and vulnerable children no option but to move. Add to this the fact that few people running a business want to take on the risk of housing a highly complex, volatile child.
5: They're really risky uh, (laughs) centres to run. We know anecdotally that the gaps that are there are generally the fourth bed in the three-bed home or something. So you're that children's home manager, you've looked at the referral come through, and you've looked at that child and go, I cannot jeopardise the progress that I've made with these three kids by bringing in this potential grenade.
2: So where do children go when they can't get secure accommodation that's registered with Ofsted and regulated in terms of care standards? Well, what we discovered is that they end up in unregulated accommodation, where there's no independent oversight of skills, training or standards, and no accountability for the people in charge.
11: And we know there are children living, we've known this for some time. living, being accommodated by local authorities, and totally unsuitable accommodation. Like? Well, like, there have been children living in tents, there have been children living in caravans, there have been children living in all sorts of unsuitable accommodation.
2: That's right. Tents and caravans. Other sources told me they'd come across vulnerable children living in chalets, holiday lets, even on barges. Children end up in places like this because there is simply nothing else. And because these children often need supervision by several adults 24 hours a day, providers charge the councils stupefying sums, a cost that is borne by the taxpayer. And there's little option but to pay up, because otherwise, these most vulnerable of children would have nowhere at all to go. So I've just had a
3: response back from the Department for Education.
2: This is my producer again, Patricia, and she's been collecting data about the severity of the situation. And they did respond to some of
3: my questions, but crucially, they admitted that they don't actually know how many children have ended up in unregistered, unregulated accommodation. Um, They just don't collect that data.
2: So Patricia tried local councils individually. So that's over
3: 170 councils in England and Wales. And I asked them how long, on average, children have had to wait over the past two years for a secure, regulated placement. So they said the average was two and a half months. But then there were eight councils where children waited at least a year for a placement. And a boy looked after by Solihull Council waited at least three
2: years. Months and years of waiting when a child is already at crisis point. So where are all the children going? So
3: when they're out of options, they sometimes send children to Scotland. So in just two years, at least 61 children from England and Wales have been sent up to Scotland because there's nowhere else for them to go here. So that means children are sometimes hundreds of miles from their families. I mean, in one case, three children were sent from Devon all the way to Scotland, which is a nine hour journey just to the border. Um, Herefordshire Council sent 11 children in two years to Scotland.
2: If they're not lucky enough to get a regulated placement in Scotland, hundreds of miles from family and friends, well, they end up in unregulated placements. And it costs a bomb. As the replies trickled in, Patricia and I stared at the sums. Trafford Borough Council spent half a million pounds on a single child over 40 weeks. Other councils gave us fees of 20000 30000 £40,000 a week, That wasn't unusual. The highest we found was £62,000 a week. Every year, that's £3.2 million. And then we came to the most disturbing answers of all. Finally, we decided
3: to ask the government how many children had died in these unregulated settings. And they told us that they didn't know, they don't collect that data centrally. But we found out that in the last five years, at least nine children have died in these unregistered and uninspected placements with at least four of those deaths being children who killed themselves, and that includes a
2: 13-year-old boy. At least nine child deaths. And that's a conservative estimate, because some councils refuse to answer the question, and many wouldn't be precise on the numbers. When children in crisis aren't given the help they need, inevitably, they will get worse. Becky has. So did Child X. So, is it any surprise that children are dying in unregulated accommodation? Here's Mark Carr again.
5: This is a political choice. Where we are is a political choice. There's no denying that. The only thing about spending and resources is a decision made by government. And either we've had over a decade of incompetence, or this, the situation we're in is by design.
2: He doesn't blame the local councils or the NHS, at least not exclusively, He says it's a matter for the Department for Education, which holds overall responsibility for children's social care. And so we tried repeatedly to speak to the department.
3: The the person that Sandra McFarlane called out was Gillian Keegan, so I tried to reach out to her.
2: We kept asking, and eventually we got sent a press release telling us that the government was banning unregulated accommodation for young people in care aged 16 and over. But with just 128 regulated, secure placements across the country, there's still not enough to go round, not nearly. And anyway, we didn't understand how regulating accommodation post-16 would help Becky, who's just turned 13. So we pushed back, asking for an interview or for our specific questions to be answered. That elicited a generic press background statement, which cited the £259 million which were promised in the 2021 spending review. But that money is for capital projects, i.e. more buildings. It's not to pay for trained and qualified staff who are experienced at working with vulnerable children. We were also sent an old quote by the Children's Minister. As a final push, we sent the Department for Education our data on children killing themselves in unregulated accommodation. We sent them the cost of these placements and the lengthy times they were having to wait. We thought those figures would be so shocking that they'd have to respond. Eventually, the press office said no to an interview. They said they had nothing further to add. Leaving aside for a moment the shocking data we discovered, beyond the horror of children killing themselves in unregulated homes while in the care of the state, beyond even the complacency of the government, it's important to realise that secure accommodation, when you can get it, is meant to be a temporary measure to de-escalate a child who is in a frightening crisis. That means that these children need skilled practitioners to care for them when they're spiralling. And when they don't get what they need, when they need it, they get worse. No one is a better example of that than Child X. After Sir James Mumby's judgment was published, almost immediately, a paediatric mental health placement was found for Child X. Her mother has nothing but praise for the care she received there. And she says that X improved. But it was a placement in a unit for children, and Child X had just turned 17. As she approached her 18th birthday, she was discharged home. And then, seven months later, another crisis. Child X self-harmed to a terrifying degree, and ended up sectioned in a secure adult mental health unit. Today, she's in Rampton, one of the three top-security psychiatric hospitals in the country. Usually people end up in Rampton because they've committed a terrible crime. But Child X isn't a criminal.
6: I didn't want her around, the kind of people that are there. So what kind of people are there? There is paedophiles there, convicted paedophiles and murderers. The Krays were in there at one point and other people like that. And that's not the kind of place that a young girl with ASD and problems like that should be around people like that.
2: Because of her heart and lung failure, Sylvia can't walk for more than about three minutes. She hasn't been able to visit child X for months. Instead, her daughter
6: writes her letters. I can't see properly. My eyes are all bad, but um, she can't write very well. But she's getting there. She's going to education. And I mean, her writing's not very... uh, If you can see it.
4: Yeah. Can I have a look? Yeah. Hello, ma'am. There's a Red Heart in the corner yes. with some kisses. Yes. I'm writing to let you know I'm doing well. I'm doing a story in education for the kids and I've been reading lots of good books and they are very interesting and I haven't read them in a long time. I'm going to the shop and there's a lot of nice stuff to buy like getting stuff, like getting stuff for you it means a lot to me. When I speak to you on the phone, it makes me happy. Love you lots. Miss you to the moon and back.
6: Love, Lucy.
1: Yeah.
6: And there are lots of kisses at the bottom. Yeah. I get at least one of them a week, I do.
2: As we're talking, X's sister Claire walks in. She's 37 and has taken over visiting her sister and being what's known as her nominated family member because of Sylvia's ill health. And her view of the situation is bleak. I
7: ask every single time, will my sister ever come home? And they'll say, she won't be here forever. So it's not an infinite, it's not a definite answer I ever get. It's a bit of like, it's a bit of hope, but there isn't a bit of hope. But then the more research I've done and the more people I've spoke to, they they never come home. And the longer they're away,
2: the more damage is done. Child X was 17 when the Munby Judgment came out. Now she's 22. And after years of being locked up and in isolation, things seem no better for her. I don't think
7: Lucy would know what it is to have a normal life now. She's never seen a £5 note. There's stuff like that. How many places has she been in since she was
4: 17, do you think? I couldn't even count. I don't know. There's over 10.
7: Over 10? Yeah. Yeah. And she keeps getting moved because...? We just don't know. We don't know. It's like a loss.
6: I think she kids getting moved um, because they said they couldn't control, not control her, but they didn't have enough specialised stuff. Yes. No.
4: Right.
6: Because when they were in like, things like restraint, she wouldn't stop. It's inhuman.
7: What's it done to your family? It's destroyed us. And that's when my mum's passed the responsibility on to me because she cannot cope. And I mean she physically and mentally cannot cope. She cries and cries and cries and because I'm, like, the eldest. I don't want any mover sisters to feel that as well, so I've took it on. It's a lot, isn't it? It's a hell of a
2: lot. As we're talking, Sylvia gets up to go for a cigarette. Sorry, we'll just <laughs> let your mum to go out. Oh, she's work. I'm addicted
6: to cigarettes.
4: You did before. say, didn't you? Yeah.
2: <laughs> this is when Claire shares her fears for her sister. I just know in my
7: heart, when my mum comes back in, that she won't get out and she'll die in hospital. I know that in my heart. I have nightmares about it. I know it. I feel it. And it's a horrible thing to have to have over your head.
2: It just feels like Becky is child X six years on. If she doesn't get the expert help she needs, she's going to get worse if it's not already too late. Her mum desperately wants her home. And the judge does too, I think, when Becky's ready. But recently, something happened. Lydia discovered she was pregnant. It should have been happy news this was a wanted child. But the judge and others were worried.
10: I'm also cognizant that the mother's now pregnant, which is not going to make it easier physically or emotionally for Becky, and there's a physical risk for the mother.
2: Lydia soon understood this pregnancy could easily mean Becky would never be allowed home. And so, at the last hearing, her barrister informed the court that she had decided to have an abortion. And I watched through my computer screen as the court fell silent. I'm only doing it to get Becky home. If Becky was home, I wouldn't even think about termination. At this point, we'd arranged to go and interview Lydia, but the situation had just become too difficult. It would have been the week of the termination. After it was done, she messaged me. Still in quite some discomfort, I was quite far
8: into the pregnancy. It's something that will be with me for life. I'm just focusing on getting Becky home. I can't lose two kids because of
2: social services. These are the unseen, untold costs of this country's failure to provide the right care for children like Becky. Becky's still being held in isolation and there's no final decision for her yet. The next court hearing about her case will take place just a few days after this story comes out. And in barrow in another mother is wondering whether her daughter will survive to see her again, wondering if Lucy, child X, will ever be free.
6: How do you cope, Sylvia? I just don't have any choice. I don't have any choice in coping because I can't ever give up. I'll never give up on her. I'll never go up on get her getting out of where she is and having some kind of normal life. She'll never be, like, you know, normal as they call it or whatever is normal, but she deserves a kind of life.
2: This story was reported by me, Louise Tickle. It was co-written and produced by Patricia Clark. The sound design was by Hannah Verrill, and the editor was Besha Cummings.
0: Just a reminder that we've changed the names in this podcast, including Lucy's, Child X's. If you're affected by any of the issues that you've listened to, please ask for help at samaritans.org. Tortoise
1: How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe
2: that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was?
4: We have to do our job and we have to find out
2: who did they kill, if it's possible? How are we gonna
1: do that? I'm Jake Halpern and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts,
2: or wherever you listen to podcasts.